Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferencecom slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to Progressions, success in the music industry. I'm your host, Travis Ferentz, and this is episode number 26. This is a special episode for us. It's our six-month anniversary today. It's a bit nuts. I feel like I just started this and was brainstorming names for the show yesterday. So let's start off with a big thanks to all of our guests and also obviously to all of you for listening. I wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't for you. So to celebrate six months, we're doing this episode a bit different. I invited our past guest and my good friend, Damian Taylor, to come on the show and interview me. And in turn, he invited me to do it live on his Twitch stream. So we did. We also decided to have listeners submit questions and to interact with the chat during the live stream. I absolutely loved hanging out with everybody and answering the questions. It was such a great time. If you weren't on the live stream last Friday, I hope you enjoy this audio-only podcast version. And if by chance this is your first time listening to the show, You may want to consider checking out another episode first, but hey, maybe not. This one's a lot of fun, but just know that this is not the normal format of the show. On that note, let's knock out a quick opening rant. Last week, we talked about using the two-minute rule to stop procrastination. A couple days later, I opened up the book I'm currently reading, and the next chapter was called How to Stop Procrastinating by Using the Two-Minute Rule. Crazy coincidence. Uh, So I was immediately excited to hear the take on the idea since I just talked about it. So I should tell you the book I'm reading is Atomic Habits by James Clear. It's been one of my favorites so far. I'm connecting with this book a lot more than some of the others I've read in the past. I don't know, he seems to really intertwine all the ideas that I love about some of the other books in a way that connects all the dots for me personally. Anyway, His two-minute rule is a little different from what we talked about last week, but touches on so many of the things we've discussed in this podcast that I, I had to bring it up. The premise of Atomic Habits is how to build good habits and break bad habits. Since I'm enjoying the book so much, I'll likely talk about it more in depth on a later episode. For today, we'll focus just on the two-minute rule that James spells out, because it's pretty different than David Allen's, but I think equally as powerful. So here it is. First, a little setup. 40 to 50% of the actions people take on a daily basis are done out of habit. These actions and choices can work for or against our goals and our ideals. James describes habits as the entrance ramp to the highway. According to him, they lead you down a path to your next behavior. That behavior might be good for you, it might be bad for you. But regardless, once you start something, a lot of times it feels easier to continue that thing than it is to start something else. He uses the example of sitting through an entire bad movie, or checking your phone for just a second, which obviously turns into 20 minutes. So you can see where this is probably going. James wants you to think of habits as the entry point, 
not the end point. You should develop habits that will get you started on the path to your goals. Because to quote some proper physics, once an object is in motion, it stays in motion. It's Newton's first law of motion for anybody that fell asleep that day. So knowing that habits will influence your next behavior significantly more than you think they will, here's the two-minute rule. James suggests breaking your larger goals down to smaller and smaller habits until you reach something that takes less than two minutes. Sound familiar? He calls these gateway habits. One of his examples. Let's say your end goal is to write a book. You can break that down to write a 5,000-word article and break that down to write 1,000 words and that down to write one paragraph, and finally, write one sentence. That is your gateway habit. Write one sentence every day. My favorite part of this chapter is when James makes the point that the purpose of this habit is not to do that one tiny thing. No one's ultimate goal in life is to write one sentence a day until they have a book. The point is to master the art of showing up. That's what you're doing with this habit you are committing to showing up and taking action towards your goal. As the gateway habit becomes ingrained in your daily life and you're showing up every day, you will build on it. Eventually, you'll stop writing one sentence and you'll be writing a paragraph or a page because you're already doing it. You're in the headspace of writing. So why would you stop? It's easier to continue. So I encourage you to take that and think about your goals, whether it be releasing your record or learning piano or getting in shape, whatever. Break it down to an easy and quick habit that you can use as a gateway to the behaviors that will help you achieve that goal. And most importantly, remember to take action and to show up for your goals every day. And on that note, I'll hand things over to our guest host, Damian Taylor. Hey, y'all. So this week, I've been thinking a lot about friendship. And what does it mean when you meet someone who's smart, who's helpful, who's intelligent, and who's insightful, and who's always willing to go the extra yard for you? Well, what you do when you find a friend like that is you support them, you stand in their corner, you cheer them, you tell them they're handsome, and, uh, and then you invite them on your Twitch stream. So I hope that was helpful, and let's welcome today's <laughs> guest. <laughs> Uh, Travis Ferentz. Travis, how are you, buddy? It is six months of progressions. It is. Yeah. How, how are you? Thanks for having me on. You're six months into progressions. This, we're recording episode 26 right now. Yep. If you could hop in a time machine and go back to speak to Travis seven months ago, who was probably still, or the Travis that was just about to make the decision, like, do I really go for it with this one? What would you tell that Travis? Oh, um, I would have told myself to take more time off. Basically, when I started this, I took almost a month off of uh, mixing and uh, recorded a lot of interviews. But looking back, I would have liked to be further ahead than I was to kind of have a have a stockpile. That, that would be the, the first thing that I would tell myself. So when you're talking about that, are, do you think that there's a benefit, though, to actually just starting because the amount of hustle that you would have had to have put in to actually get out 26 episodes in six months is, is an enormous amount of work. And do you think in many ways, if you had understood how much work was involved, would we still be waiting for episode one? No, I don't think so. I think uh, what I meant by that was I batch recorded the first 10 episodes to make myself feel like I had a safety, uh, safety margin. 
but the editing, I never knew how much time would go into the editing and the cleanup and the, the intro writing and the socials. So yes, I agree with you 100% that starting is, you know, absolutely necessary. I just wish I would have edited five of those 10 episodes first. <laughs> okay, I'm but with you. Great. You can't do 26 episodes. You can't do 52 episodes and then put it out because it's changed so much over that time period. And I've, you know, I never interviewed anybody until I think you were my second interview. So you were the second person I ever interviewed in my life. And, uh, you know, it, it just wouldn't be as good if you, if you did a whole year's worth and then dropped them because you, you grow and you change. So you kind of, you have to put it out there and, and see what happens. And are you still in a point where you're, you're, you're the big thing you're thinking about is, geez, that was a lot of work? Or are you able now, Travis, like sitting together with like 35 people on the internet, sitting in live, kind of reflecting on what you've achieved so far? Are you able to take a moment, give yourself a pat on the back? Or are you just like, this episode is already a mess and are you just imagining how much editing you're going to have to do just <laughs> just to get going? <laughs> uh, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm nervous because now everybody's going to know how much I edit myself and how many times I stop mid-sentence when I'm interviewing people. So uh, now we're all going to know how often I stutter. That's my real fear here. But okay, no, I, I think uh, I'm really excited that you know, we're six months into this. All the people on this stream have been super supportive. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not tired. I'm invigorated and excited to keep, you know, to keep going. Uh, I'll worry about how much editing goes into this episode uh, tomorrow morning. <laughs> Nicely said. All right. So we started at the end. Let's do the quick run through really of like your whole process, your whole career. I understand you're from North Carolina. Yeah. How did you get from there through Berkeley into studios in LA? And could you kind of give people like a little bit of an overview of, of the flow of your own career? Yeah, totally. Yeah. So just listening to that question uh, makes me feel like I should have prepared. But uh, <laughs> I started playing bass first in uh, like eighth grade to basically be in a uh, talent show performance with some friends of mine. And this this story came up on the podcast before. So basically, I went and I got a bass and I took like a lesson and then um, then they decided I wasn't good enough to play with them because <laughs> I'd only mm. been playing bass for like a week. But that's how I got sucked into music. And then so all through high school, I played guitar, switched over to guitar, played guitar and bass. And, and then I started recording a friend of mine, Greg Sullivan, who's a, a good buddy of mine. And um, I was probably going to go to college for something like history and play lacrosse. And then my junior year, I actually had an injury, so I didn't play that year. And that year, I spent a bunch of time recording my buddy Greg. So that kind of was like, oh, the first thing I did was record myself. I hated it. It was awful. So then I found somebody to record. And uh, from there, it just kind of spiraled. We just made, we made, you know, we made two records in our high school and, you know, sold them for whatever, $2, burning CDs all night. And then uh, I went to a... Um, a production and engineering like week long thing at Berkeley. And so that's the first time I saw a studio. It's when I was like, okay, this is what I want to do. So And when you said you started recording, was that just like did you have a computer at home or or how did you do that? I'm, I you're you're kind of in this ageless thing where you could probably be anywhere in a twenty year age range. So I'm like <laughs> you know, was this was this like on a mini disc four track or uh or did you have garage band or something? No, it was um it was a Korg 
I think it was a D1600. It was a 16-track hard disk recorder, like, you know, maybe the size of a... A decent know. cookbook. Yeah, and it, it had, like... <laughs> it had You could use four effects. So if you wanted to compress, like, something... I didn't know what compression was. I was just ruining things left and right. But if you wanted to compress something, you had to choose. You're like, okay, we're going to compress the vocal and the bass. Didn't know what compression was, like I said. But those two things sounded good with whatever that button was, and then you just burnt. We just burnt a disc out of the. Uh, it hit a disc burner, so it would burn the CD out there, and then I would make copies on my computer, and my buddy would keep burning discs out of the, the Korg, and we'd stamp these like paper labels on them, and then there's probably people in the chat that never even had a CD. Uh, mm -hmm. So then we would just, you know, carry them around in our backpack and, and convince people that they should pay us money for them. So, so that's, that's what it was. It was, uh, it was a hard disk recorder. And then funny enough, I was talking to a buddy about this. This is embarrassing, but I'm going to share it anyway. I knew that uh, MIDI was how, you know, things talk to the computer. So I was like, I need a MIDI cable, you know. <laughs> so I go to Guitar Center <laughs> I was like, I need, I need a MIDI cable. And they're like, okay, sure. And I didn't want to like act like I didn't know what I was doing because I was trying to, you know, get, get something. And the, uh, the guy was like, well, here, this is what you want. You want this monster MIDI cable. So obviously I got upsold by this Guitar Center guy on this MIDI cable. And the, the Korg had, it had a MIDI output. And I came home and opened my cable and I plugged it in the MIDI output. And then uh, went, to, went over to the computer and I was like, there's no... <laughs> There's no plug for this in the computer. These things, these things don't talk together like this. And uh, so that's why I, I started learning more stuff there. Amazing. Yeah. And so was there, was there like, let's get into some of the kind of critical turning points through your whole arc. So at some point you decided to do music, but was there a big like preset future that you had to lean away from? And then what were like the inflection points that got you from, you know, that deciding to do music to moving to LA, to getting into the studios and stuff like that, like. So yeah, it was that that junior year of high school that really solidified recording, and that's what I wanted to do. That's like the the piece of music that made sense to me. So I went to Berkeley, I got into their recording program. I did all four years there, and that senior year, I really thought I was going to go to Nashville, and so we did. They had a spring break trip to Nashville uh, that I went on. And I really liked it down there. We were there for like a week or something like that. And then I was like, you know what? I got to check out LA too, just to see. So then the, the following spring break, I went to LA for a few days. And when you get on a plane in Boston and you get off at Long Beach and you walk, you, you know, you come out the stairs and it's like you have a jacket on and you come down the stairs, it's like 85 degrees 90 degrees of spring break and you're on the tarmac and the like sky's blue and you're like I'm coming here. This is <laughs> <laughs> you just got I just got on a plane in a in a snow-covered place. And then I had a lot of friends here that had come out when they graduated and I seemed to have no more people getting jobs in Los Angeles than I did in Nashville, so that was obviously part of it as well. And I knew that I wanted to do the big studio path because that's kind of what was kind of taught in that production and engineering program. If you wanted to be an engineer, you went to a studio, you went through the path that Damien, you went through, and a lot of engineers have gone through. And I think that I was the last generation of people that will experience what that path was like, because it doesn't really exist anymore. 
But uh, so that's how I ended up in LA with no job, trying to get a job at the studio. Applied to Village and Henson and Capital. That was my first three applications. So, and you got Capital? I did. Yeah. Like I did. what? Like off that first application? There was a little bit of a tie-in. I'd worked with a client there who okay. suggested that I that I call Paula over at Capital, who who was the studio manager. Okay, and so good. I kind of st- I had that intro, and everybody knows how important that personal intro was. Mm-hmm. But the job wasn't the job wasn't really a job. It was it was like this temp fill in guy, and so you know Paula would call me the at like three p.m. and ask me if I could work at like five p.m. and I had no schedule. I was like the extra guy. So if it was a huge orchestra setup that they needed to do overnight, then somebody would call me and I would I would go and help set up the chairs and whatever. So it was like it's first couple months in LA, I was working like, I don't know, eight to 20 hours a week. And you're like, am I ever going to work 40 hours a week? And then once they know that you can do what they want you to do, then all of a sudden you're working 60, 80 hours a week. Yeah. You just have to make it through that little, little period there. So cool. This is a perfect segue into a couple of audience questions. Oh, okay. Sam over in Houston is asking like, if you were in the music scene in North Carolina before you left, and then Bill in Alabama is asking, how did LA feel different to college? And then also just because you touched on that whole, you know, the traditional path, uh, he says, what do you think about the traditional path career mindset versus the independent and DIY approach and learning from your own experience and work? Okay, so I blacked out. I forgot them all. Let, let's go. Sam uh, the was first one, yeah, Sam North was just Carolina music like, scene. Music uh, scene. No, not at all. I mean, I barely even played shows. <laughs> right. I played like two shows in my life. So no, the answer there is no. Second question was, how did LA compare to college? Mm-hmm. Um, it was, LA was a culture shock. You know, I think North Carolina to Los Angeles would have been like a mind-blowing culture shock. But that stop off in Boston, which is like, if you haven't been to Boston, has everything that you want out of a big city but it's still real small, like you can walk across it. And so um, that was kind of a little primer. But Los Angeles as a whole is, like, it's a really amazing place, but it's also very, um, it's very challenging. Just, you know, people don't necessarily want to be your friends. Like there was, when I came out here, I got the feeling that there was a lot of fakeness in Los Angeles. And uh, luckily I had some friends and then, you kind of navigate around that. But if, if you were coming out here by yourself, it, it, is, it is quite a shock, this place. Not knocking it, it's an amazing city, but keep that in mind. Last question, what was the last question? Uh, and then what do we think about like the traditional path career mindset versus like an independent or DIY approach? And I guess as you've come through the studio and you're now kind of just, you know, the six month anniversary of progressions is a perfect point of just you're launching something completely different on your own. This is a tricky question. I think that the old traditional studio path, I don't think it exists anymore, but I think that if you want to be an engineer that records bands or you want to be a producer that works with musicians in the room, you need to find a way to to make it exist for you again. Like you need to find the studio in your town that's still doing it or go to a place that maybe you have a chance. Even if you can get into a big studio, there's not as much turnover as there used to be. So you'll find that there's less hours when you're a runner. And you'll find that 
guys don't leave as much as they used to leave. So those promotions aren't happening. So it doesn't exist the way that you've probably read a book about it. In my, this is my opinion, obviously. But the, what you'll take away from it is invaluable. So if you go into it knowing that the road, the classic studio road, isn't real anymore. <laughs> this sounds horrible. People are going to hate me. But there's so much to learn in that situation. When you watch those people work, you know, if you understand how equipment works and you understand how compressors work and EQs work, and then you can stand in the back of a room and watch, you know, people with the experience of like Damien do his thing or any other engineer in Los Angeles or New York that's been doing records and working with bands for, you know, decades, you can learn so much. And so I think that you have to find a way to make that model that doesn't exist fit for you a little bit. If, if you want to be a traditional recording engineer, producer in the traditional sense, if you're more entrepreneurial and self-starting and into learning, I mean, you can learn anything on YouTube. You can have a Twitch stream where you're making beats. You can be learning on Twitch. If you're that kind of person that doesn't really maybe want to have a boss and really thinks that they can learn stuff on their own and they're capable of that, then, you know, I don't think working in a studio is for you because I think there is a whole new path now where people can do whatever they want. And I think that's really cool. But, you know, if you want to record orchestras, watching a Twitch stream is not going to get you recording orchestras. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot we can share on Twitch, but there's a lot you can't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I think yeah. you just have to you have to decide what your end goal is and then Yeah. And I, actually I've I've had a couple of like younger engineers who are in like kind of in-house positions or might be assistants hit me up and asking for advice on how to like move their career forward and I've suggested to them keep doing everything you can in the studio, but actually talk to the studio boss and find out what are other areas of the business they need help in or spend some of your spare time learning stuff like web design or learn some graphic design skills or stuff that seems not directly related to music, but in terms of like the modern skill set of anyone doing anything creative, these are actually incredibly valuable tools. And part of it, even if you then wind up befriending the people who run the studios, is you learn a bit more about business. Yeah, because uh, if you're going to go DIY, you are not, you don't have a job, you have a business and you need to think a lot more like, as you said, Travis, like an entrepreneur, Yeah, not just like, oh, I'm going to do stuff myself and then I'll get signed. And it's almost like signed as having like a job or something like that. So, oh yeah. You yeah. Know. If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. I mean, my, um, my experience from, you know, working in, working in studios for however long I worked at Capitol is that once I realized that the, the path that I thought I was on didn't, like, really, it didn't really exist anymore... And I started learning all these new things because in my mind, when I came to LA, it was, I'm going to be an engineer and then I'm going to get hired by a producer and then I'm going to mix records and record records. And that's what's going to happen. And then I didn't learn logic when I came out here. 
I only knew Pro Tools. I never touched Ableton. I stopped playing guitar. You know, I forgot the small amount of piano that I had. I didn't study the changing business aspects. I didn't know what publishing was and songwriting. And then, you know, probably about five or six years ago, I started doing all that stuff again. That's when I realized that you can't do one thing anymore in, in music. You know, you could have been an engineer, just an engineer, you know, in the early 90s. But now you have to do everything. And, you know, you're working for yourself. So you have to understand business. You have to understand how to promote yourself, understand how to build, you know, lasting connections with people. So, Well, this is probably a perfect point to ask you about, like, what was your impetus behind leaving Capital and going on to the next phase of your career? Because this is, like, just for everyone who hasn't been through a big studio system, like the point where you you leave the studio and you're no longer like under that umbrella is a very very major moment, and some people never do. <laughs> um, but what did you kind of did you know what you were stepping into? Um, what was the thought process that led up to that change? And also, I'd love it if you could just articulate a little bit more when you say that path you thought isn't there anymore. You're just specifically talking about just being able to be like a full time engineer, or what what was it that was kind of like almost a disillusionment that made you think you needed to switch things up? Well, I think the the path that I'm talking about that I don't think is the same is if you want to be an engineer, then you are an intern or a runner at a studio and you you do all the entry-level stuff. You do all the cleaning. You go to get things. And then somebody lets you get in the room a little bit and then kind of work your way to getting promoted as an assistant. So then you're the guy that knows how that studio works. And when an outside engineer comes in, you make sure they get what they need. And then, you know, you become a more veteran assistant. And when somebody shows up without an engineer, that becomes your job. You start doing those in-house sessions. And then doing that, you meet some producers that you really like. And then one of those producers has an engineer and he wants to go and do his own thing or start producing. So then he hires you. So then you finally leave the studio. Then, uh, you know, you work for that producer or maybe you work for a mixer for a long time. And then you start taking some work, not taking work from them, but getting work because of them. And then you're like, okay, well, now I'm going to be freelance now that I have all these connections and I've made all these records. And so that's the path I'm talking about. And was that what happened when you left Capital or was it like a different situation? Oh, yes, right. So your question was what sparked me leaving the studio system, essentially, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. I should backtrack. When I went to Capital, I worked there for two to three years. And I was kind of at that spot where I'd probably get the next promotion to assistant. And at Capital, it was, there's not as many runs at Capital because of the way that studio works, uh, it's such a high turnover and the, the sessions are like high pressure. So you do a lot of setup. So basically the runners at that studio, which is amazing, set up, you know, all the microphones and everything for the sessions at night. And then during the day, you know, you might have to change a session over or you'll be doing the food runs. But if you're the night guy, like you're setting up like a 70 piece orchestra and putting all the microphones in and then you're coming in the next morning, like with your fingers crossed, trying to see like, did they move my, my violin mics or did they leave my violin mics? And you kind of get to pretend that you knew what you were doing. So I was kind of at that point where I would probably start taking, getting assistant gigs. And I was getting a few, like maybe one every couple weeks, like a random thing, you know, or I would assist the in-house guys. Cause that's usually how you learn is when a staff assistant gets his engineering job, this is just in any studio, then one of the potential next assistants assists that in-house guy. So that's like your, your learning cycle. 
so anyway, I was at that point where I might get the promotion, but there was no promotion to be had. <laughs> and uh, there was a producer that came through that was chatting with the assistant that he was working with. And he said, I have to do a bunch of guitars. Do you know anybody that can help me out? And he said, well, try this kid. He's not an assistant, but you know, he's, he's, he's smart, I guess. I don't know. I call myself smart on a podcast. But um, so anyway, I went to go work for this guy for a day or two. And he was like, hey, do you want to do this permanently? And I was like, well, I, I guess so. I quit my job. So I quit Capital and I went to go work for this guy. We did a bunch of Disney pop records and he was a songwriter. And that's when I started getting into pop. Then after a few years of that, I felt stagnant because I was working with one person. And I was meeting everybody that came through, but I was like, nobody's calling because you're that guy's guy and you're always working for them. So we actually did a mastering session at Capital. After two or three years after I quit Capital, we went to a mastering session and I started talking to my old boss and I was like, hey, you know, I'm thinking about moving on from this thing. And we were just chatting and he was like, well, well we're building a couple extra studios. And if you wanted to come back here, I would, I would hire you back. And I was like, Okay. All right. So I went back to Capitol. And then that time I worked for five or five years, five or six years. And I was a staff engineer for these two newer rooms, which were specifically for songwriters, which is what I was doing on a daily basis already. Songwriters and producers and pop writing sessions and, you know, publishing companies to use. So it kind of fit into what I was doing. So I went and helped finish building those rooms. And then I did that for about five five years or whatever. And we had a couple clients come through. Uh, yes. So since <laughs> I'm going to go back, the thing that set me up and made me curious about being independent is that those rooms, there were two engineers, me and my friend Joe, and we weren't always really busy. I mean, we'd work 80 hours one week, but then the next week, depending on like what was going on, we might work 10 and we didn't work in the main studios because they had those covered with their three studios and four guys. And then we had two studios and two guys for the, the pop rooms. And so if it was slow, it was slow. And so we started doing work outside. So I had a job that it would always pay my bills for sure. It always, it always paid my rent, but it would leave me with time. And so I would try to find sessions. So I started building a clientele outside. So I had one foot in the door, one foot out the door, which I think made the transition easier. But then ultimately the transition came when a producer asked me to come and work for him. And so I left, uh, I left Capital a second time and went to go work for this producer. And that was um, a short-lived thing. And it, when I went to go work for him, it's when I realized that I didn't want to have a boss anymore. And it's not that I didn't like working for him or that I didn't like working for capital. I wanted to be involved in decision-making. I wanted to be involved in projects that I wanted to be involved in. And, you know, when you're not in charge, you're not always doing projects you love. And when you say not wanting a boss, it's not just having like a single point of all your stuff is coming through one channel that you don't have control over, basically. Is that a safe way to put it or... Uh, no, I mean, no, even, even more so to, to not having input in what you're doing and, right. and, and the not music specific, like business wise equipment upgrades, uh, schedules. I just, I wanted to have control of my life. And that's something that you never have when you're working for a studio because you will get phone calls. I mean, I took a pizza out of the oven one time 
and turned the oven off and went to work because somebody called me and was like, hey, we're doing a session in 30 minutes. You're the only person that can do it. And I'm just like, hmm. all right, fine. I'll be there in 30 minutes. So tell them that, you know, it's not going to be set up before they get there because that's not possible. So mm-hmm. you just, you have, you know, if you're in that world, you just don't have control of what you're doing with your own personal life. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. And so what did you st- have to put in place in order to be in this like new era for you? Like what, what, what did you have to change in your thinking? What was, what was the outlook and what were the tangible actions that you took to make that work? I think one of the first things I had to overcome was the mindset that the big studio instills in you. And this is something that I, I think I talked about in a couple episodes of the podcast so far where you're supposed to be invisible and you're supposed to be one step ahead. And so I was really good at being invisible and one step ahead. And what that didn't get me was a lot of, I don't want to say recognition, but kind of, because when you do a one-day session and you're really good at making it super smooth and everybody's happy and you just appear when you need to appear and disappear when you need to disappear, people will leave and not even know your name. You know, every time I've done a session that was like multiple weeks, you know, those are friends that I've, I've had for, for the rest of my life. But you do so many one-off in-and-out sessions that you can become invisible. So the first thing I had to do was basically get over that and start telling people like, hey, these are the things I'm good at. You know, we worked together before. You don't know that. You had a good time. And that was difficult because it goes against what was ingrained in you for 12 years. When you're working like the pop rooms in Capital, was there a lot more kind of like interaction with people or was it still just like setting up and then getting out of their way? Because, I mean, I remember I think I met you in one of those rooms on a Lofang record when you were working with Frank Tutaz, I think I might have met you first then and then properly at Tom Monahan's place. Yeah. No, it was um it was at a Kimbra show, but I was working with Frank. Okay. <laughs> and she played um was at the venue down the street. Anyway, oh, uh, think of me, yeah. <laughs> you got you got us in over there and me and Lofang and, and Frank came over. Right. Okay. And then yeah, and then we and then at Tom's studio when I, I was working with Frank again. But I guess like this leads to like how did you because you have so you have to have make this switch of like basically let me engage people more, talk to them about what I'm good at, talk to them about what I, I guess even like what you want to do right, and then did you start actively reaching out to people or was there still a certain amount of like serendipity of just if someone's in the room you'll talk to them? Yes, I remember what you asked earlier. The issue with the pop rooms is there's there's less in my situation there was generally less interaction especially towards the end of my time. Because at that point, I started to see the writing on the wall where every producer came in with a duet and they said, hey, what mic do you have? And I said, you know, Telefunken 251. He goes, cool, plug it in here. Or plug it into the Neve and the CL1B and then plug the line into my duet. And he's like, and then you can Mm -hmm. go outside. He's like, I don't want you to be bothered with having to cut this vocal. And I was like, well, but that's my job is to cut this vocal. So me, you're not not bothering me. Now I'm actually bored. Now I'm bothered because I'm bored. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I could see the writing on the wall there that everybody was recording themselves. And so the other issue is that when you're working in that pop songwriting realm, you work with a lot of great people, work on amazing songs. I mean, just monstrously talented people. But unless the artist is in the room, it's a demo vocal or a demo scratch guitar or whatever it is. And so it's going to get replaced. Or if the artist is in the room, the song still has to make the record. So there's a lot of 
you know, I mean, I would honestly say I've probably recorded thousands and thousands of songs. I don't have thousands and thousands of credits. So that was another uh, wall that I kind of ran into was that all of the people that I'd worked with had really not accounted for the types of credits that I would like to have after 15 years. Mm. Once I left and started doing more music for people that was coming out, like working on records that was coming out, like everything I did with Francois Titaz, um, I love working with Frank. He's over in Australia. We should beg him to come back. But oh, shit. every time I work with him, I always meet people. And, you know, the music comes out because we're making a record. We're not making a demo. And then you get more work. So it was a, it was a building process of working my way into working on records that were getting released. Because then there's something for people to hear. And they like it. And they want to work with those people. Or they want to meet those people or whatever it is. And so I had to get away from the demos is really what I had to, had to get away from. I don't know if that answered your question, but that's no, that's, that's, it's a really interesting insight, but I'm actually just reflecting on this. And I think you actually just like, because I wound up mixing something and we'd met briefly in the studio, I think you hit me up and were just like, Hey, do you want to like meet up? Yeah. Yeah. So I think you must've like engaged at a certain point, like let me actively reach out to people. Yes. Yeah. That was, is that, is that a fair statement? And I mean, was there like how going from the, being invisible to like actively reaching out to people did was there a bit of a journey you had to go through yourself just like emotionally i think we understand like intellectually now like and strategically why it was necessary but was there a, a headspace switch that you had to adopt yourself oh yeah full on because i'm i am the quiet shy kid who doesn't like to bother people and so there was uh there was somebody that i was chatting with and they said something that really changed the way i looked at it and what they said to me was like, well, if somebody you haven't talked to in like five years sends you a text message and says, hey, man, what are you doing? I'd love to know what's up. How do you feel? And you're like, well, I feel great. You know, if, if, if Jim hit me up and I haven't seen him in five years. And he's like, okay, so then why do you feel like reaching out to somebody and reconnecting is inconvenient? And I was like, well, damn. I mean, I guess, I guess you win. <laughs> There's no argument <laughs> against that. So once I kind of like had that mental switch over, it just became easier to hit people up. Yeah, because you mix that that Roken, uh, now Richard Orofino project, and I thought it sounded great, and I I was just like, whatever, I'll hit Damien up, see if he wants to get coffee. If he says no, then whatever. You know, it, also, <laughs> you have to get past fear of no. What I had to get over was, A, f the fear of bothering people, because I didn't want to inconvenience people. And I had to get over the fear of somebody saying no, because you at least know that person's intention. And I'm not talking about uh, my interaction with Damien anymore. Obviously, I'm talking about like, if, you, if you're reaching out to a band or an artist and you're like, I love your music, if you ever want to work together, I would be down. And if they say no, well, you never have to ask him again because you know that they don't want to work together. So you actually got, uh, you got an answer. So, you know, don't be so down on yourself about it. That's great, yeah. And actually, uh, Chris in the chat is just saying most of us this side of the industry have that same hurdle. It's a really big one, isn't it? Just being free to reach out to people. And I think in many ways, like, I really relate to what you're saying, and not just in the studio, but life in general. I feel like that was a big lesson that I started to learn as I got a little bit older. Like, if you're interested in something, reach out. And the worst thing that's going to happen is that you'll know you don't need to wonder what if anymore. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but the, the potential upsides are, are almost limitless, you know. 
I remember like just plucking up the courage at the end of a session with Guy Sigsworth to say, hey, I'm trying to go freelance. Do you have any advice? And that basically was the doorway to my entire career, just straight up asking him that. This kind of leads into like a really interesting question from our buddy Noel Jackson in Detroit, uh, who's asking about your career. And he's saying like, what in your career was planned and what happened out of circumstance? Um, whew, I guess things that were planned, driving to LA, applying to Capital was, was planned. Um, quitting, quitting Capital the second time was planned. Um, quitting my next engineering job after that and going freelance was planned. Man, that might be it. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I guess the, you, releasing the podcast is planned. Yeah, yeah. I mean, would would you feel now that it's almost like since you, you that move out of your second post-capital job was really such a big headspace switch that now it's kind of like everything to a certain degree is planned, like you know the direction you're going in, but it's it's um, so much of it is still responding to what actually comes up day to day or job to job, but at least you're kind of captaining the ship through the weather. Yes. Yeah. I would say that after, after I really embraced and understood what working for yourself was, I think everything to an extent becomes planned and everything leading up to that point where I guess I didn't really know how to navigate a career or what I was supposed to be doing. Most of that was circumstantial, you know, to be in a room and work on a record and you get a Grammy nom that wasn't like, that wasn't planned. That was an accident, you know, to get hired by a producer that was not planned. But when you're working for yourself, it has to be planned to a certain extent because you have Mm -hmm. to know where you're going. And I guess, you know, like one of the themes you've touched on a lot throughout the podcast's history is, you know, the, the, the seminal input goal, output goal episode, and just like knowing what are the things that you can do consistently that are right in front of you that will lead, well, should lead in the direction you want, which actually Noel has a follow-up question there just saying, does, does anything that you planned actually end up how you expected? Or did anything you plan end up how you expected? Sometime on Tuesday when I upload the podcast episode, it it releases at 2 a.m. That's about the only thing. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, no, very, very few things turn out the way you plan. Well, especially if there's external forces. If you if you make your favorite record and you put it out, you don't know how people are going to react to it. So you planned on having a number one hit, and the rest of the world planned on not enjoying it as much as you thought they would. So yeah, when there's Anytime there's external forces, it, it's going to be, it's going to be a different outcome that you thought. But your goal should be to make sure that the outcome is on the road to wherever your plan is supposed to go. I guess. Nicely said. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which leads perfectly into a question actually from Sebastian uh, Jimenez, uh, who's saying, "Do you think studying at Berkeley was a key factor in where you are right now?" I have to say, yes and no, because. <laughs> I wouldn't be doing what I, I wouldn't be on the path I'm on if I didn't go there. You know, it basically, it helped me get my job at Capital. You know, it, all of my best friends in Los Angeles, I met there. I've gotten work from people that I knew, like, so I can't say no. So yes, it did, it did get me where, where I am today. But I don't necessarily think that it's necessary. It's the Mm -hmm. path that I took and, and I don't regret it. 
I think so many places, just like when you're not too sure where to start, then an audio program can be great. Like I did a the SAE diploma in New Zealand when I was like 18, 19. And I was just like, well, that was the only thing I knew about at that point. And it, you know, it's, it's, it is just somewhere to start and, and to kind of like you say, like start to learn those basic concepts. Um, and then you, you still need to learn so much just down on the job. And I'm curious as well, like when you were, especially like when you started at Capital, this is more like a philosophical thing. Okay. Um, we are spending, as you said, most of your time was like set up overnight. You weren't necessarily in the room that much. So how was your, how was like the unfolding of understanding like the social dynamics in a session? Like when did you really start to twig that actually this is probably more important than all this other stuff? Or, or you know, when when did that really start to be something you leaned into? Um, as an aside, I've had, like, younger engineers when I've been on, like, vocal sessions and they're in-house, like, halfway through a vocal take, want to start talking to me about how nice the compressor was on the lead vocal, and I'm sitting there with, like, a notebook trying to listen to the vocal, and it's like, okay, haven't quite figured out that side of things yet, you know? Well, I guess the way Capital worked was if you were on the night shift, you were setting up. If you were on the day shift, you were basically... A lot of times what a studio like Henson or Village would call the third. So like, for example, you would have uh, like a 50-piece string section in Studio A. And the the runner, they call them setup guys, the, the setup guy's job was to go into the live room and make sure that um, all the headphones are unplugged. Because what these string players do is they all bring their own headphones. And they just plug them into the box. And I don't know why... They don't unplug their own. They don't unplug the headphones that you gave them. So you have to go through and like find all these extra headphones because you're just going to get click bleed in an orchestra. And anybody knows how string recording works. It's all about the room mic. So everything in the room is basically what you get. And if you have like ten pair of headphones that are just blasting click, it's no good. So if you were on the day shift at Capital, you were allowed to be around. You were in the back of the room because most of the sessions were high pressure enough that the assistant couldn't really go do that. Like the assistant had to make sure that the conductor had his headphones, that the string section was getting what they wanted, that the the woodwinds were getting what they wanted, that the patches were right, the engineers riding the faders and tweaking the EQ, and then who's gonna go out there and make sure that the chairs are in the right place or the headphones are unplugged. So you spent a lot of time in the room. Okay, and so great. you watched people work. And mm -hmm. you're also told to basically you know, sit down, shut up. <laughs> you know, there's some people that you work with that you know that you're going to get yelled at if you say anything. So it, you just, when you're, when you're in a professional studio environment like that, I don't know, maybe it's the kind of person that I am, like, you know not to interrupt. Like, when you look around and you see people that are doing music like they're, like, doing surgery, you, you, don't, you don't interrupt them because you're like, oh, shit, these people are serious. These guys aren't like a punk rock band like that are having a good time and drinking 40s. Like mm -hmm. this is like serious work. So I'm going to be serious and sit in the back. So yeah, that's kind of when I kind of learned what the flow of a session is. And also the good thing about working in a big studio is when you make a mistake, somebody tells you. <laughs> in no uncertain terms. Yes. Uh, this is leading on perfectly to a question from Maurizio. Uh, oh. former guest on Progressions, and he's just saying, uh, who has mentored you or who are your mentors or, you know, people that were like a, a significant influence? Hmm, I don't... Something that I actually regret is that I don't think I have a person that I could call a mentor. 
I mean, I guess by mentor, I mean like person that I have worked under and like learned from, you know, in like a traditional dictionary sense. Uh, people that have had a big impact on me are all the guys at Capital, obviously. Um, just watching engineers like Al Schmidt work. If you don't know Al Schmidt's work, you should look it up. It's amazing. Um, Francois Titaz, every time I've ever worked with him, it's like inspirational. It's kind of like changes the way you look at music. Um, who else? For those who don't know, incidentally, Frank Titaz uh, is probably most well-known for uh, the Gautier somebody used to know. Yeah. Uh, he did Kimbra's first album. Um, and I would I agree he's just a phenomenally fascinating, brilliant human being. I hope you can get him on as a guest sometime if the time zones work out or you can pin him down. Uh, I'd love I'm you know if you need to apply some down. pressure. Yeah. Yeah. I've got, yeah, I've got some emails floating. Um, <laughs> uh, yourself, obviously, you've been a big influence on me the last few years since we met. A lot of engineers that I've spent a little bit of time with, but those would be the big ones. So, like, yeah, I do kind of regret not having, like, a clear mentor. All right. Uh, cardio Party in the chat. Liv has a question okay. uh, just in the what, what she's curious about in your career. It's a very, very interesting question here, Liv. Uh, she's asking, knowing what you know now, what would you have done differently? And you're not allowed to do a... Well, it all worked out and I'm here now. But like if you could go back and, you know, very strategically apply some advice, um, what would you what would you tell yourself? I would tell younger Travis to do all of the internal mindset habit work that I've done over the last four years. I would tell him to do that when he's like 14. <laughs> So 14-year-old Travis probably doesn't know what internal mindset work is. So if you were like the ghost of Christmas future coming to visit Travis and you had to write out like a list, like a few bullet points, what would you put on that list? See, this one I would have liked to prep for. <laughs> I would encourage not caring what people think, not making decisions based on what somebody might think. Not that I think that that was a detriment to me, but I think everybody makes decisions kind of on, based on your surroundings and they might not necessarily match with what you want to do. Uh, don't be afraid to put yourself out there. You know, going back to the don't be invisible thing, be confident, I guess, in that you will bring something to that situation. Know that, that you can get a little bit better every day, that you can learn something, never stop learning. I think we talked about in the interview that I did with you, I had a chunk of time where I didn't learn new stuff. I would tell Travis to skip that. Skip that step of not learning new stuff. You're never that good. Uh, don't be cocky like that. Okay, I want to drill into one. So be confident is like a big, difficult to define, difficult to, you know, we all know and we feel confident. But 14-year-old Travis is like, but ghost of future me, I don't know how to be confident. Like obviously you've talked about like not caring what people think, Um not being afraid to reach out, but when it comes to confidence, what do you think that, like, what can you do to be confident? Where do you think that comes from? I think the best way to overcome confidence is to, or not, you don't want to defeat your confidence. To build confidence is to, um, to know what you bring to a situation, like know what your strengths are, and then have belief that when you show up to a situation and you see that your thing fits into a situation that 
it will fit in and that it will make the room better. Don't be confident. Just know that everybody brings something to the table. So when you're able to come to the table, bring your thing and it will fit with somebody else's thing and the puzzle pieces start going together. You know, and if it doesn't, whatever. It, don't let it get to you. Go find another table. You were just at the wrong. It, you were just at the wrong table. Go go down the street, find another table, and your puzzle piece will fit there. You know, don't be defeated by a, a miss or a loss. I mean, if anybody that's been in the music business for more than a decade quit the first or second or third time that something went wrong. They would have been in this business for like 12 hours. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So so do you think in many ways it's just like developing the resilience to anticipate, not, not just to handle, but to anticipate that there will be setbacks and things that are a little bit uncomfortable and, and that that's just part of the process? Yeah. Kind of feeds into that as well. And learning from the setbacks. Don't. Right. Don't. Uh, what's a, What's an example? Don't. I lost a gig recently. I I, I missed. Uh, I missed the. I didn't nail the the rough, and I lost the whole record. And it, three or four years ago, five years ago, that would have been like, I would have been bummed for months, just just furious. And I was like, I was barely pissed for like the length of the phone call, because I learned that I went a little bit outside of the expectations. And in that situation, it didn't fit and they didn't like it and they didn't want to work together anymore. And that was a reminder to me that like, Hey, you're building on their vision. You're not changing their vision. And sometimes you need those reminders. So it, yeah, it doesn't bother me. You got socks, whatever. It doesn't bother me that I lost the gig though, because I was able to take something away from it or reminded of something. So yeah, when you hit those negative moments, like let them be negative for, you know, whatever, an hour a day. And then you know, step back and then look at it and be like, what went wrong? You know, why, why did that person not like my music? Why did that person not like working with me? So I think if you turn, if you turn defeats into educational opportunities, then, uh, yeah. I know we've been asking you a ton of questions, so I'm just going to share a few things with you, Travis. Um, I had a question for some viewers and I just, uh, or listeners, I should say, I was just asking people, like, what was your favorite opening monologue from Travis on progressions? And can you share anything about how it affected you? Uh, so he's just jumped off now, but Chris uh, Chris Omlab had just said, these are some of my favorite moments. I see them as part of a larger woven element coming together over time. We can glean great insight into Travis through what and how he chooses to share. And I really appreciate the focus on community, decency, and passion that runs through the heart of each segment. Sam in Houston posted this twice, because it must mean so much to him, but he just said Ian's episode and your opening monologue on efficiency versus being effective had a big impact on him. Bill, William Massey over in Alabama is saying the one about great people who have kept notebooks. A lot of the monologues have been good, Strong and thoughtful motivational energy. Input goals. <laughs> I'm really more of a fan of the progressions monologue as an institution than picking favorites. I think that's a beautiful way to say it. The institution of the progressions open. If anyone hasn't Thanks, listened to progressions, what we're talking about is uh, Travis puts together some really, really thoughtful, uh, incredibly clear, well-executed thoughts on a specific uh, kind of 
on almost like ways of thinking about things, Travis, I think would be fair. It's like you could have a great way of stirring up the listener's perspective on their own lives and career. So it's been an incredibly like consistently valuable element to the podcast that I know we all appreciate. Thank you okay, guys for humbling me over here. Thank you so much. Live <laughs> <laughs> in Kansas City is just saying the Wayne G. Miller opening is her favorite. That episode permanently changed uh, how she thought about her career decisions, past and future. That is pretty profound. Thank you, Liv. Um, and then Noel <laughs> from Detroit is saying, as biased as it sounds, I liked his monologue when he interviewed me. <laughs> Acknowledging your influence and how you should support others is infinitely important, and I totally agree. Uh, I think it's really, in many ways, the the currency of the world we're in now. I think this ties in really nicely to what you're saying, Travis, about the previous studio trajectory that you kind of imagined, where you get into a studio, then you go through a predetermined path. When like when the you know someone leaves, and then it's your chance. And I think we're now in this kind of like DIY entrepreneurial phase where it's a non-zero-sum game. Like there's infinite opportunities, infinite abundance out there for everyone. So actually working together, supporting each other is such an important thing to do. And it does pay you back a million times over. Like we, we're 100% in control of our own trajectories. Um, and by finding the people we resonate with, we can all kind of lift each other up. Agreed. Here's another question I had for people, which is, have you had any insights or breakthroughs as a result of listening to progressions? And Bill had another really, really great thing he's saying here, which is that, yes, Travis has humanized the industry for me. Um, I'm less afraid of this stuff than I was before progressions. And also just realizing that the world of music is a huge, huge world and that it's filled with lovely people uh, has been a, a significant breakthrough for him. That's amazing. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Let's dive into some more questions for you. Tom Burden, who I think is Flyout Cricket in the chat, is asking, what are things you do that are part of your daily routine to work effectively and efficiently? Um, I'm going to be honest and say that I change my habits and routines all the time. I'm on a quest for something that works perfectly for me, and I don't know what perfectly is, but things that I do currently that I've really been enjoying I get up at 5 a.m., and that may or may not be a mistake, but I've been doing it. Uh, get up, have coffee. Um, I jot a few things down, just like thought-wise, and usually I try to like ingest something um, like educational or inspirational in the morning, like whether it's a course. I love or your use of the word ingest. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, just calculating, you know. Um, right, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so I usually try to take in something that will kind of, like, make me think because I think I'm, I'm my brain's, like, really going in the morning. And then a new thing that I'm doing right now that's working really well and, like, reducing my stress and making me feel like I'm, I'm getting more done is I have a whiteboard behind me, and it's got two columns, and it's today's one thing. And then today's distractions. And so the the one ultimate task that I have to do today goes in the today's one thing, obviously. And then today's distractions, I mean, it's probably a better word for that. It shouldn't be distraction. It's something in my schedule or something that needs to happen that day that's going to potentially interfere with the thing. So like today, it's I have a phone call later. I have this. 
I had another call before this. So all of those things went down. And it's kind of the act of writing it down, I think is helpful to me because when stuff used to come up, it could really blow me off track and I could really get lost. So just writing down Damien's stream 9 a.m. to 11 a.m., a phone call with so-and-so at 1.30, like I've got that out of my system now and it's not going to bother me when it pops up. Not that this bothers me, but like when you're in a flow, you know, I just, it's just all the things that are not the, the thing. So that's actually been great. I've been doing that for uh, like a month. You feel better at the end of the day when you... Does that kind of help you transition in and out of those different states, like from like your deep work focus thing over to let me handle this? Like, because I, I always find it's almost like the transitions between different modes are the most challenging. And ideally you want your transition to be like 90 seconds long, but often they can be 90 minutes long. No, I haven't solved that one yet. I'm still I'm still okay. trial and erring. Like what I really would would love to do is like find a system that really works for me and then and then share it with people and the, so that's the journey I'm on right now. Some of the other things I do is if I'm mixing, phone is on is phone's upside down. I I don't do not disturb it, but phone's upside down and I won't check it and I'm always running a timer so I know how long I'm working. So if I'm working for about an hour, hour and a half, like if I'm at a place that's not a like where it wouldn't be detrimental to pause. Like I'll take a break and walk around for a second and maybe I'll see if somebody texts me then. But trying really hard to just eliminate anything that'll break your concentration. So I try to actively do that. I quit Gmail now. I used to have Gmail open all the time and then you're mixing and you just flip. You flip over. It doesn't matter. Nobody emailed you. It does you're still gonna look at it every two minutes. So I quit that. It's just little things like that that help me work. Other habit wise, I'm gonna say that I exercise every day. My wife is going to say that I don't, but I try really hard, preferably before I get into the day. I did a lot of running during the pandemic, and a lot of the ideas for the podcast are coming on these jogs. Like once you've gone through the, the I don't, this is going to be a rant that makes, that should have been set up, but like the getting things done idea of like brain dumping all the tasks you need to do into like a server that you can just reference all of your to-dos in. Once you get all that stuff out of your brain, and then you focus like when you're working on what you're working, like when I'm mixing, I'm mixing and I'm not thinking about other things. Like once you start to like learn how to segment those things, then when your brain can do its thing, like when I'm on a jog, it just like to me is just idea vomit because I'm not worried about like a mix or whatever. I love it. Okay, this is a perfect, perfect pivot point uh -oh. to some slightly more specific questions. Okay. Our friend Martin Zemertz from Ireland in the UK has a couple of mixed questions. So I'm, I'm just going to throw them all in here together. He's saying, did you always imagine mixing as a job? And if so, what was that moment? And then a little bit more specifically, do you ever have to ease back with some of your mixed decisions because the client wants something else? And do you ever clash creatively? Yeah, ultimately, when I started music, it was very early that I decided that mixing is what I wanted to focus on. And I knew that it was probably one of the hardest things to break into. But so yeah, so that was always the end goal was to to mix. I just kind of I enjoyed the nerdy aspect of it and getting lost in it. Uh, the dialing back and clashing with clients. Yeah, definitely. That happens all the time. It's not a clash, like we're not arguing. But yeah, sometimes I have a, a different approach than what they had in their mind and, and it bums me out, but it's just, it's their vision. So if I wanted long reverb and they wanted short reverb, well, it's going to be short reverb. 
So, yeah, that stuff happens all the time, but eventually, once you reach a certain point in your career, it doesn't bother you. So I don't consider it a clash. It's just a a readjustment. We got a couple more from Martin Zemmertz, actually. He says, um, we'll we'll do a rapid-fire three rounds, okay? Okay. So, one, can you share any teasers about next guests? Uh, Yeah, I'm not going to give names, but we've got a composer duo. Uh, We've got a really established engineer. We've got a cool instrumental electronic artist, um, a, a really a producer that's done um, some more songs than anybody. And when that, when that episode <laughs> when that episode comes out, you'll understand what that means. Yeah, lots of good ones. Okay, that's that good. I'm, I'm ne- really excited next, about. Next rapid fire from Martin is: Would you ever think about doing videos? Yes, for sure. It's in the, it's in, well, I'm not going to say it's in the works. It's in the planning works. (laughs) And then another rapid fire one is again from Zemmertz. We're just going to, we're just going to do a Zemmertz batch processing session. He's prolific with his questions. What are you next looking forward to in your career? I am looking forward to seeing where this podcast goes and, you know, just continuing to, to put knowledge out there and being stoked for anybody that enjoys it, whether it's a small number or a large number. Uh, and then also to, um, you know, just keep mixing better and bigger projects and, and working on more music that I love. So it's kind of cop-out answer, but that's it. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, Max is asking a couple of mix-related things. Uh, so we'll rapid-fire these. How many mixing decisions are large moves versus micro-adjustments? Um, 50-50. Good answer. Cool, awesome. Uh, We just had a really lovely message in here from CIV Music, who's Zach up in Calgary, a regular long-time listener. Just wanted to say progressions and yourself, Travis, have had a huge impact on me. I listen to the new episodes every time I drive back to the city for work. Every episode I learn and apply a new idea or frame of mind that has helped me grow as an artist and so much more. Uh, also, it's very inspiring to become more vulnerable and put myself out there more. Uh, so, th- Zach, thanks for sharing that one, buddy. Thanks, Zach. Okay. <laughs> Here's one for you. Put you on the spot. Oh, no. uh, Live of Cardio Party in Kansas City is wondering if you had to pick one instrument VST and one effects VST to be your only non-stock DAW plugin. Which would you choose? So one instrument, one effects. Otherwise, you're using stock all the way. Um, let's see. Well, I think on the instrument side, I think I can get away with cheating and say Arturia Analog Lab because that'll give me a bunch of synths. And effect-wise, just one. I'm going to do Echo Boy. Going to do Echo Toys. Boy? Nice. Yeah. Nice, yeah. nice. I went for the same. Um, although there's, there's a big caveat, like are we talking production or mixing? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, that's that's a big question. But yeah, Echo Boy really is one that just makes it all work, isn't it? Um, another actually really interesting question from Chris, Chris Gear. He's saying, can you tell us about the moment that you realized you were actually succeeding in the studio at a high level? So I, I seem like, you know, going from, oh, I'm trying to learn stuff to like knowing you can do it. You know, I think it comes from the reactions of the people that you're working with and that you're allowed to be in whatever room you're allowed to be in. And I think, uh, I think it compounds over time. I don't think there can be one moment. I think you can look back on 
like whatever you're 2015 and be like, oh, wow, I made some really cool records with a lot of people. I can't think of one moment. Yeah, I think it would be just interactions over time. Cool. Great, great, great. I have some really interesting questions from Noel Jackson. Uh-oh. Um uh, These won't quite be rapid fire, but there's a few questions that are really good. So I'm okay. going to... I'm just going to be Noel's proxy here for a second for a a mini-interview. His first question is, how has your creative process evolved over the years? I would say that the the biggest thing that's changed since the day I plugged my guitar into my Korg is that I'm not hard on myself. Like Mm. that day that I recorded myself and listened back, all, all I could hear was how bad I was. And I mean, I'm a better musician now, but I also don't harp on a performance. Like if I put a guitar in a track or if I play, like I can barely play piano, but like I know I can fix it. And once I get something that feels good, I can move it. So I think that's what's changed the most is allowing myself to be creative by not being hypercritical of what I'm doing. Because in the end, nobody nobody knows. Like if the guitar feels good, it doesn't, then it feels good. If you solo it and it's kind of janky, it doesn't matter. It, what's it feel like in the track? So that would probably be the biggest shift for me. That's a great, great answer, great insight. Uh, Noel's next question is, this is a fantastic question, I have to say. What elements of your personal life have the biggest effect on your professional life? Ooh, uh, negative or positive, I guess. Um, I would say that my wife has the biggest impact on me and is a big catalyst for change for and or a lot of the reason that I went on some of these journeys. So yeah, so the the thing that the thing that shifted my professional life the most is wanting to have control of my personal life. Hmm. And Very and nice. be able to Very make nice. choices. So Yeah. That's dope. Uh final one from Noel. Okay. Uh which seems like such a simple question, but I think there's gonna be a lot to it. Uh Travis, why did you start progressions. You know, I was searching at the time. I wanted to do something. It was, you know, a YouTube channel. Um, I was interested in productivity. I was interested in um, these like mindset shifts that I've been making over the last three or four years. Um, And then, I don't know, it was a curiosity. And then when I started going deeper into it, I was all about it. I was really into it. And so, yeah, why did I start is kind of, I was just curious. I mean, why am I doing it now? I'm really enjoying it and I'm loving it. But I guess, I guess that's why people start things. They're curious. Curious? Great, great. Was there, the question from me, how long had that been rattling around in your head? And how did you go from taking the podcast being something like, oh, maybe I should do something like that. Like, oh, that would be cool if to actually tangibly turning it into something? Well, uh, there's a couple layers to that. One, I was working with like a, a coach, a performance coach, and he was really bringing to light for me the amount of thoughts and ideas that I was not executing on. And so we really shaped, we shaped a way to have time because it takes a lot of time. So we developed and kind of worked to, to A, lay out a way to continue to do my job of mixing records, continue to 
have balanced family life and then insert this second job and then to commit to do it. And that's kind of the, that's kind of the thing when, you know, you hold yourself accountable and especially if you have to report back to somebody or you have a good friend or, or a bandmate or whatever it is, you won't do it. So that was big for making it become real because that the goal was to make it become real. And so we broke it down to what are the things that are going to prevent you from making it real? How can we eliminate those things? What are the things that you need to do to make it easy for you to sustain? Like, so that's kind of how it truly became real. So you had like a, you had a kind of a, a framework to operate in. I'm really actually interested in what you said about like, what do you need to stop doing? And, and it's this thing you get so many people saying, oh, I'd love to do this, but I don't have the time. So could you share like tangibly a couple of things? Because you just obviously made a decision that, well, you were going to make the time because it was important. Um, but what are some of the things you had to stop doing or clear out of the way in order to be able to hold that time consistently? I had to eliminate distractions uh, and eliminate procrastination. I had to master my time, which is, you know, these were all things that I was doing while developing the idea for the podcast. So it's like they all they all came together. It's like, it's the stuff that I'm interested in. It's the books that I'm reading already. And so then to find a way to, to share that with other musicians kind of was the inspiration. So let's see, tan like specifically, I started not obsessing over a mix, you know, like I wouldn't work on something for three days because nothing that happened on day two and day three was really audible to a client. So battled the perfectionism there really started looking at how long things were taking me, started running like the timer that I always talk about. And, you know, looking at where I'm wasting time, how I'm losing time. Uh, so really understanding time. And then well, let's see what else. Yeah, it's hard to say it's hard to give like tangible things because a lot of it, they were mental mindset changes. They weren't like, I started running a timer and it allowed me to have time for a podcast. It was more committing to deep work when I when I mix like why does it have to take 14 hours let's make it take four hours and see what it sounds like okay you need another hour okay cool well it took five instead of 14 or um little things like just staying committed to what you said you were going to do you know if I tell my wife we're going to go to dinner at six then I'm going to stop working at 5 45 we're going to go to dinner at six if you're always pushing something off and you're always having, there's always a little excuse, then it's hard to make those big changes. So, I mean, the most tangible thing I did was get rid of little excuses and understand time, you know? Great. I mean, it sounds like just even just straight up, like you made it a priority. Yeah, yeah. Even just, yeah, so so you're going to make it fit. And it's it's kind of fascinating how much we can get done if we just flip the switch in our mind, say this is something that's happening now. yeah. Yeah, exactly. This is what we're doing now, so this is how we're going to do it. Yeah, 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 totally. Um, so an interesting question from Martin Zemertz, uh, again, who's just curious about in your career path, um, like your biggest challenges when collaborating and how you overcome them. You know, I think my biggest challenges in collaboration are some of the things we've already talked about, which I think I've now revealed to everybody what my gaps are, is not speaking up or not not being confident in my idea. 
And the way to get around that is put your idea out there and then watch somebody like it. You know, <laughs> and you ha that's all you have to do is make a suggestion and then get a positive reaction. And all of a sudden, the next time you have a suggestion, it's not as, uh, not as scary. From like the mixing engineering realm, having a difference in opinion of what something should sound like and then gi giving the client what they want fully while still, you know, to some extent doing what you believe needs to be done. That's kind of a really broad um, thing, but, you know, it can be super technical. If somebody wants something to be a certain way and you know that it's going to be a problem later, find a way to navigate that. But ultimately, you have to do what they want because it's their creative vision. So um, it can be hard to to swallow what you think is right, I guess. that that That's what the answer is. The answer is that sometimes you'll disagree and it doesn't matter and you just have to eat eat that and move on. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's interesting that even that, I, I think for people who haven't worked on like our side of the business where it's like we're ultimately f facilitating someone else getting a result, um, it's not like, if if you're an artist and someone else is an artist and you're arguing over whose name is going to be on the record cover and exactly what it's sounding like. So it, it's almost like, Martin, I think there's something that happens as well. If someone actually tells you like, oh, I don't like this, then that's great news because you can find out what they do want. It's like by actually putting forward an idea that the whole point is just to land at the end solution. So it, I think sometimes actually adopting the point of view that you're working as a hive mind I like that. Can be more important. Do you know what I mean? And and I think like I have really clear understanding with the money of my clients that was a running joke with a prodigy. I will put forward 20 ideas, all of which do not get used, but it got us to the 21st that came from Liam Howlett because then he like saw it from a new angle. Yeah. You know. But actually, yeah, just and and the other thing, Martin, that I think people who haven't worked on records in the way that Travis or I have, which is just like you worked on so many records. And there's also just the understanding that for an artist, you know, historically it might be you have an album every couple of years, every few years, and those 10 songs or something like that are going to be all they have for their entire life for those three years. Whereas Travis has another mix at like 4 p.m. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So it's, so we have like our, our stakes are kind of like a little bit different. But yeah, I, I really actually, you know, there's when I was very young, still working with Guy Sigsworth, I remember a couple of tracks when he wanted to put stuff on there and I was so upset, like getting really, really moody and pissy about it and then actually just heard it the next day and I was like, wow, that's great. And so I think a big help for me as well is just realizing like I'm just one brain. How can I know exactly how this is going to wind up and being open to trying new things so it's like if someone brings in an idea that isn't the same as your idea just like give it a shot you know it's it's a little bit like travis what you're saying even just about like getting in touch with people like put stuff out there and just let the whole process be fluid you never kind of really know where it's going to go yeah now Maurizio's just saying um it's important at your stage of a career having peers around for confrontation when it comes to a difficult mix i think i know what he means i think yeah when you're working with the same people and you have the same collaborators for such a long time, you guys start to trust each other, girls start to trust each other, uh, you can be a little bit more confrontational. You know, like my my good buddy, Corey, who has an amazing record out that, you know, he basically made with just his friends and him and I spent most of the time putting it together and then his his buddies played guitar and and uh, and drums on it. But, you know, we know each other so well that we can we can push each other a little bit, you know. 
when you don't know somebody as well, or it's the first time working with somebody, and you're kind of assuming you know what their vision is, you have to be delicate when you push back and be like, well, is that, you know, why do you want that? So, but I think ultimately when you have a great collaborator that you are comfortable with, or you have, you're a songwriter and you have a great writing partner and you can be like, hey, that line's awful. You know, like all my years watching songwriters work, nobody ever said anything was bad because there's two strangers getting put in a room, you know? So yeah, being able to push each other a little bit is key, but you have to be in the right group of people for that. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's almost like once you've established that trust with someone that you both understand that you share the common goal of making the end result good. Yes, yeah. Th then it's like the whose idea is it kind of gets removed from the equation. And then if I say, hey, Travis, like this low end isn't working, then you could say, you know what, Damien, I've been struggling with this, but I found that what you've done here, I'm having this, these issues here and I've been trying to solve them. Is there another way to fix it? So when you can really just talk very objectively about what you're trying to achieve and what you're finding at different stages of the process, I think that helps a lot as well. Then, of course, we have the things like if we're just mixing, you kind of have to work with what you've got. But if your client's coming back saying this is an issue, then you can really talk very clearly with people about why it's an issue. I'm starting a record next week, actually, that I was meant to start mixing a year ago. And I opened up the sessions and was like, there's no way I'm going to get the result that you want with this multi-track. I literally just like opened it up and looked through and, and just told them, like, this isn't going to work. But was able to do it and also provide very clear feedback about here's where the issues are. And I could fix them, but it would be this whole entire different process. So I think, yeah, it's also like a... Would you say, Travis, a way of being able to communicate with people that's focused on the goal instead of like trying to prove someone wrong or something like that or, or having that trust or that rapport, establishing a rapport even where you can have those kinds of conversations productively? Yeah. Well, and the language is huge too. If, it, if I say, you know, Damien, your guitar part doesn't quite work, that's super different than saying the way the chorus on the guitar interacts with the that main synth melody is, I don't know, what do you think? Are those things working for you? And then, mm -hmm. because when I said it the other way, I was attacking the guitar player. I was like, hey, mm -hmm. your guitar part isn't working. But if you can identify, mm -hmm. you know, what's not working and avoid blaming somebody, you know. That's perfect, yeah. Because you're, you're directing someone straight away towards like, how do we find a solution? And here's something interesting I found. I don't know if you get this, but sometimes I bring stuff up like that to people and they'll say, I just love how, I, that's exactly it. I love it. And you go, okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> great, you know? Um, and so sometimes for me, like, I think it's almost a case of like really trying to shake out and understand where the person's coming from. And then this, this gets into a lot of the questions we've had earlier about like if someone wants, how do you know how someone wants something to sound if you don't have the conversation about it? And there's only a certain amount that you can kind of describe before you're starting. Sometimes you just need to get in there and, and find out what they like, yeah. you know? Travis, your wife Maggie is wondering who you get your inspiration from. <laughs> she added that one in the Instagram. Um, well, I get um, inspiration from her, but I think in general, I get inspiration from the people I'm working with. I mean, sure, I can hear like a record that I think is really cool, but it doesn't necessarily inspire me. Like I get more inspired by great interactions and enjoying the people in the room. You know, if we're making a record and you're excited and really about it, then you're inspiring me to be excited and, and all about it. Love it. Great. We have a few more messages for you, Travis. Do, do you have time for a few yeah, more messages? Yeah, more, yeah. So our, our friend Sam in Houston just wants you to know, Travis, you are doing a great job 
and you're making the best interview show in the music oh, business. Oh, thanks, Sam. Appreciate that. <laughs> um, the, pro- the prolific question asker Martin Zemmerts in the UK slash Ireland just simply says, Travis, keep them coming. All right. Bill Massey in Alabama says, you don't know how helpful progressions is for aspiring artists. I recommend your podcast to my old bandmates and music friends. Travis, thank you. Awesome. Thank you. You guys guys making me feel really good here. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Maurizio in Turin is saying, keep on doing progressions. It's a really wonderful thing. And then Chris... Uh, Chris Gear is saying thank you and thank you again. I'm selfishly holding out for this podcast to continue for many years, even if it means you have to sacrifice some of those multi-hour commutes back into the city once we're all allowed to go to work again. Uh, thank you so much for everything you're doing, Travis, to help provide access to some of the greatest minds and talents in our business and for engaging with us so genuinely, one human to another. Uh, and then Noel in Detroit is just saying, you're doing amazing work, Travis. Keep putting your ideas out there. Keep creating. Keep making music. You're a deeply empowering, humble, and talented person I'm so happy to have met. Same. Agreed. And I mean, I just have to say, you, ju- you just ran through some prior guests. I just have to say thank you to you know, Maurizio and Noel and you and Chris and anybody that has agreed to come onto the show, especially a show that's new. You know, nobody knows what it is especially those first 10 people that had never heard an episode and they were taking my word for it. Uh, so yeah, thanks to everybody really for, you know, being willing to come on and, and hang out with me. Amazing. It's been a joy. And Travis, you know, what's the last thing we do on progressions? I have one final question for you and it is, what is one big goal you're working on? Uh, and what is the next action that you'll be taking towards it? I was able to prepare for this one. i've got two main goals one being i really want to get this podcast out to as many people as possible so i'm i'm setting a a tangible you know defined goal of breaking into the top 10 on um, the apple music overall music chart not the music interview chart so breaking into the top 10 there with this podcast meaning that you know more people are hearing it and it's getting out there and people are enjoying it uh, so the first step I'm taking right now is I need to push it out with marketing and learn some more about like SEO and just, you know, just get the word out there more. So I've reached out to a potential marketing person to help me out with that. And if they don't want to do it, then I will be taking some courses or potentially talking to somebody else about, you know, how to handle that. Because I've I've been trying to teach it to myself and it's just one more thing to add onto the list. It's challenging. So I'm willing to bring in help. Uh, and the second thing is I need to build my studio. I've been talking about it for a year. It's over there. It's my garage right now. And so the first thing I'm going to do for that is uh, I have one builder in mind. I got to get a couple other names, you know, start getting some plans and get my studio back since I moved out of my old one. So Amazing. Great. Well, Travis, it's been real. Just personal message from me. Um, when you told me you're doing this, I just thought that's a fantastic idea, and I'm really just delighted to see to be sitting here with you six months later. I think the consistency, the discipline, and the kind of passion that's required to do something consistently week in week out uh, is something we can all learn from. And it's just been like a genuine joy just watching you on your journey here, um, seeing all the wonderful people you've been bringing in. And I'm very, very, very excited to see where it all goes for you in the future. Amazing. Thank you so much. And thank you, everybody on the stream. You guys are all listeners. Everybody that sent me a message, sent me a review, 
whatever. I appreciate every single one of you, especially anybody that said that I've had an impact. That was the thing that like really flipped it for me was doing that first episode or second episode and and getting a message back from a stranger on the first episode. And you're just like, whoa, okay. I have to make oh, wow. all these really good now, you know? So, <laughs> so make sure you guys keep pushing me. If I put a bad one out there, just give me a hard time, send me a message. So... <laughs> Amazing. Well, you're on Twitch now, so maybe now I need you to do some guest things. So we're going to raid Miss Her because it's 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 Friday and it's a six-month celebration. So, Travis, maybe you could just tell everyone, like, thanks for watching and thanks for hanging out. And we'll see you next time. And then I'll press the I'll press the raid button from there. Yeah, thanks for watching and thanks for hanging out. And say that for a little bit longer because we have a few more oh, seconds. Uh, thanks again for hanging out. Love hanging out with you guys. <laughs> <laughs> See you later, everyone. Take care. So that's it for our special live anniversary show. I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I did. Thanks to Damien for being an excellent guest host and for all of you that submitted questions. If you've been enjoying the show, could I ask a favor of you? Would you be willing to share it with one person in your circle that you think would get value from it? Maybe you have a favorite episode or there's an intro that you think someone else needs to hear, just shoot them a text with a link. I'd greatly appreciate it. So on that note, we'll be back next week with a regular episode, and I'll see you then.